This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. But you know what? The Christian life is a... It's paradoxical, and things are not always what they seem. And by the Holy Spirit, every day and every week, we need to be holding on with faith to what Christ has done and what Christ has called us to, because often the truth that is in Jesus does not seem to match the reality of our lives. And as we press into 1 Peter, we're going to see this reality more and more clearly. So please turn with me in your Bibles if you have one, and I strongly encourage you to bring your Bible with you. Uh, We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and you will also see the words on the screen behind me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, to verse 25. Listen to the word of the Lord. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. This afternoon, I want to talk about three paradoxes in our text. A paradox, of course, is a seeming contradiction, a seeming contradiction, when what we experience in this life does not match up with what God has said. And as you go through the Bible, you discover that the people of God, century after century, 
live in this awkward tension between what God has called them to and the painful, awkward, and difficult reality they are experiencing. And this is certainly true of the Christians to whom Peter is writing. Yes, great things are true of them, and they have this massively awesome identity and future in Jesus, but life ain't so great for them. They are suffering, and they are a despised minority. People are saying wicked lies about them. No one likes them. They feel awkward and out of place. Their present looks grim, and their future does not seem very hopeful. And now Peter's job is to help them live in light of this great reality that is theirs in Christ. And even though our own situation is not the same as Peter's readers in the first century in ancient Asia Minor, we too need to be reminded of what is true of us in Christ and how to actually live that out in our lives. And to do that, we need to be very comfortable with paradox. These things are true, but we don't see them yet. And you are always going to have cause for doubt and suspicion of God in your Christian walk if you fail to see things by the Spirit with faith. And so I want us to meditate on three paradoxes in our passage today. The first paradox, the first seeming contradiction is this. There is beauty in abstaining. There is beauty in abstaining. Peter talks, he urges, in fact, his readers to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Abstaining means saying no, denying yourself, opting out. And what we're opting out of and saying no to and denying is passions, the passions of the flesh, of that old part of us that is not yet submitted to Jesus Christ. And all these passions are really the unruly emotions and unrestrained indulgence and the lustful cravings that arise within us. And we all have deep and dark desires that we must struggle with. And my set of dark desires are not exactly the same as your set. But we all have things within us that tempt us and draw us and lure us to unrestrained indulgence. Just living with, with whatever bubbles up in our heart. Whatever desires and urgings and cravings, that's the thing that we go and do. And Peter reminds his readers, this kind of self-indulgence is actually about leading a life of self-destruction. This is not about finding your true self and just following the passions of your heart. These are actually desires which are warring against your soul. They're not your friend. What you want to do is not your friend. It's your enemy. And your desires are actively scheming your destruction. There's something suicidal and self-destructive in the hearts of every single person here. An unreasonable urge to drive ourselves on the rock and make shipwreck of our faith. And this is where spiritual warfare begins. Before we ever have to fight Satan or demons, we're dealing 
with ourselves. And the most difficult war of all is the lifelong war against our own impulses. The book of Proverbs says that a man without self-control is like a city without walls, open to whatever enemy might sweep in and take us captive. And so the Christian life, immediately after saying yes to Jesus, we must start saying no to ourselves. There are a lot of no's you must say to yourself in following Jesus. Whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and deny himself. And Jesus taught Peter and the other disciples the only true self-fulfillment comes from saying no to yourself again and again and again and again. That's very wearying saying no to yourself, isn't it? It gets very tiring denying yourself. And it would be very nice just to say yes, to give in again and again to whatever bubbles up in our own hearts. But Peter says, he urges them, no, you can't do that. That is going to destroy yourself. You are sojourners and exiles in this world. Now, that's a very interesting phrase because the first time it occurs in the Bible is all the way back in the book of Genesis. This is how Abraham is described when he's buying his burial plot for his wife in the land of Canaan. Abraham was promised the land. He's walking around in the inheritance that God has sworn to give to him and his descendants forever. But yet, in the meantime, he's walking around as a stranger and an exile in his own inheritance. He's there, he's respecting and dealing with pagans, people who don't know God, but yet he has to keep himself apart. He does not buy into their values. And the reason he does that is because he knows, he has faith that God has something better planned for him. We are sojourners and exiles, and we're waiting for something better to come from God. This world and its values are not going to last forever. I'm turning 40 in December, so I'm probably going to be hitting the halfway point. I may have long passed it already for all I know. But I'm starting to realize my life is not going to last forever. It's going to come to an end. And what is my hope then? What am I going to do now that is going to last beyond that point? Maybe it is worthwhile to say no to these temporary, immediate cravings in my heart. So there's this negative in this paradox, abstaining. And the word abstinence is not a very exciting word, is it? It's very hard to attract someone to a life of pure abstinence, to say no again and again and again to ourselves. But the paradox is that in this life of absence, God wants to bring a beauty, a loveliness, an attractiveness out of your life. Because Peter goes on to speak about living, having honorable conduct among the Gentiles. And that word honorable is literally good, beautiful, noble, and attractive. Peter is inviting and urging Christians, walk in such a way that your light shines before a watching world, just like Jesus himself 
taught. It's not just God who has his eye on you. The world around has their eye on you. And therefore, we're called to live a beautiful, noble, and attractive life. Now, I'm sure Peter's readers were very tempted to simply withdraw from their world. Nobody liked them. Persecution is looming on the horizon. People don't seem to want them there anyways. How tempting would it have been for them just to, just to pull away from society, form a little community outside of town somewhere, have their little commune, and stay totally unconnected with this harsh pagan world around them. And Peter will not let his readers do that because there's something more at stake than simply protecting yourself and having a nice, cozy, and unbothered life. God has a call on all Christians to display his glory to a watching world. And this is an audience that is critical, ignorant, and suspicious. The Roman historian Tacitus described Christians as a race despised for their evil practices. And he talks about how when um, Rome burned down and Nero had all these Christians killed, he says, basically, we know they didn't actually do it. But you know what? They're haters of mankind, so it all turned out for the best in the end. So here is the audience that these Christians are called to live a noble and honorable and attractive life among. And this assumes, doesn't it, that there is at least some kind of overlap between the values of Christ and the values of the world. There is something, there are some virtues, some things that every culture holds as honorable that must be rejected as contrary to the word of God, but every culture also has things that can be affirmed as God's common grace, a dim memory of how, of how things were meant to be, the law of God written on people's hearts. And so there is some overlap. Some things can be affirmed. And in every culture, we must ask ourselves, what is it in my culture that I have to reject, that I must abstain from and say a firm no to? And all of us in our home cultures have different things we have to say no to. But we're also invited to ask, what is it in my culture that, that is good? What can be affirmed? And how can I live a life of virtue that people in my own culture can recognize? How can I live a life that commands even the grudging respect of non-Christians so that they find themselves attracted to life in Christ? And that means, doesn't it, that we should not be rebelling against social norms unnecessarily. There are really three categories of values in society. Things that are bad and should be rejected. Things that are good and must be affirmed. But then there's this middle category of neutral things. How people dress, what they drink, what they eat, how they behave in certain, in certain situations. And we're called, don't rebel against those things unnecessarily. Each of us must think of ourselves as a missionary. How can I live a life that attracts people to Jesus, that puts no obstacles in their way? Matthew was telling Isaac and I on Friday about a situation in his hometown eight years ago where there was someone who was drunk in the public square. And the the non-Christians were talking about this person, and one of them said, I think he gets drunk because he's a Christian. 
That is literally the exact opposite of what we want people to think when they think about Christians. Our life is what gives credit to the message. And if it doesn't match up, there is no way that people are going to come to Jesus. They want to see that the gospel has power, that God is alive, and that his spirit is working through us. And the goal for all of this, according to Peter, is that the nations, the outsiders, the non-Christians, that on the day of God's judgment, on the day of visitation, that they would glorify God for the good deeds that we have done. Now, hopefully, and ideally, this means that they've seen our lives and themselves have come to faith in Jesus, and that when Jesus returns, they themselves are celebrating because of our witness. But it may well mean their glorifying of God is something done unwillingly as their own knee bows to Christ against their will when he exercises his supremacy, and they are forced to acknowledge that despite the evil they've spoken of Christians, that they, in fact, are good people and that God was at work in them. So that's paradox number one, beauty in abstinence. All these no's that we say add up to a yes to God and to his glory. Paradox number two, verses 13 to 17, is this. There is freedom in submission. Freedom in submission. Two words that we would think of as antonyms as complete opposite. Peter talks and, and, and tells these Christians, you need to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 13. There is a submitting that all Christians are called to for the sake of Jesus himself. And notice in these verses... The ultimate submission is to Christ. The Romans were calling everyone to worship the emperor as divine and offer sacrifices to him as a son of God. But Peter describes the emperor and his governors, they are human institutions. They need to be respected for what they are, not worshipped for what they are not. And the question is, what is the will of God? This is the will of God, he says, That's what matters, not the will of the emperor. And we obey the emperor or whatever political governors God has put over us because that is what Jesus asks us to do. And man, this undermines the claims of all authoritarian states, doesn't it? Authoritarian governments, totalitarian governments down through the ages have always wanted their people to believe that the state is the highest authority. And they have felt threatened by any citizen in their realm who believes that there is some authority above the state, someone who is going to judge the government itself. And though Christians are called to submit, we do not submit to the state as something ultimate, but because we are submitting to God. And as Peter himself says to the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. Our submission to the state is not absolute, but it should be the normal behavior of our lives. So our calling as Christians is this, to find and to occupy our place in society. Where has God put me? What has he called me to? And when I find the place that God has placed me in, I need to ask myself, how can I be a blessing to those around me? How can I live my life in such a way 
that this society is glad that I am here, if possible? How can I live in such a way that the people below me or above me see me as a blessing? And therefore, what we're called to do is this, good, do good. Not just the bare minimum that keeps you from being a criminal, but such good that Christians earn praise for being essentially public benefactors. That's what we should all be aspiring to. And certainly not giving any justification to those who accuse us in their ignorance of being antisocial or against the government. We're called not just to submit even, but to honor the emperor, to give him the respect that he deserves whether it's the emperor as in those days or your queen or your king or your prime minister or your president, to show them the respect due to their office. Even if you feel like the man or woman in charge of your country is not very deserving of respect, we respect them because we are under the submission, under submission to Jesus. So, submitting. But in that submitting, there is freedom. This is the paradox verse 16, after talking about all this submission, Peter says, live as people who are free. Now that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Submit yourself to the government, but live as people who are free. Do you know what? The state does not own my soul. My soul does not belong to the emperor or the government or any political leader. It belongs to Christ. And I'm submitting because I belong to Jesus and I'm a free man or a free woman in him. And therefore, my freedom is not a freedom to indulge myself and go crazy in obeying all the desires that well up in my heart. Because that's just really another form of slavery, isn't it? But it's finding my true dignity and purpose in Christ. True freedom is finding and becoming who God created you to be. That is real freedom. And then we're called to use that freedom to serve God and neighbor. So here's the paradox. I'm submitting in these different social and political situations. I'm bowing my head. I'm recognizing the God-given authority of political leaders. But even in that, I'm not giving them my worship. I'm not giving them my fear. That belongs to God alone. And I can look them in the eye, not as a slave, but as a free man or a free woman, and remember that I belong not to them, but to Jesus. So that's paradox number two, freedom in submission. Then we come to our third paradox. If we found beauty in abstaining and freedom in submitting, thirdly, we find, best of all, we find Christ in suffering. And Peter begins talking about this institution of slavery. Now, in the Roman Empire, there were about a quarter of the empire was composed of slaves. In fact, there was at one time a proposal in the Roman Senate, let's make all the slaves wear special garments so that we could recognize them. And it was voted down because most of the senators were afraid that the slaves would realize how numerous they were and start a revolution. There were just a massive amount of slaves in the empire, and basically the economy of Rome was built upon slave labor. And slaves were absolute property. They belonged not to themselves, but to their master, and they had zero rights. Slaves were believed not to even possess 
reason and deliberative skill, and they were seen as basically a tool, a living tool that the owner had the right to do whatever they wanted, he wanted to do with them. And as the gospel started to penetrate the Roman Empire, many slaves came to Christ. And so in every church gathering, there would always be slaves present, somehow getting away from work to worship Jesus. And it would have been especially awkward for Christian slaves because slaves were expected to worship the God of their master, to maintain harmony in the household. And here you are as a slave, you're worshiping Jesus instead now. It must have been extremely difficult for those men and women to maintain faithfulness to Jesus in that situation. Now, you might wonder, why is it that in the New Testament, it talks about slavery periodically in different parts, Ephesians and 1 Peter and Philemon, but why does it never condemn slavery? Why does it never urge the slaves to revolt and seize their freedom? Now, you have to recognize the reality of the situation that the early church found itself in. They were a tiny minority religion. And a slave, counseling a slave uprising, it would have had zero chance of success. There were massive slave Uh, rebellions in the Roman Empire, Spartacus being the most famous, and they were brutally put down. Crucifixion was designed as a punishment, especially for slaves, to frighten them into submission. And when the Spartacus rebellion was put down, there were crosses for dozens of miles in Italy with slaves hanging on them. As you would walk down this road for hours, you'd see slaves hanging from crosses. So the question is not, meditating on some idealistic situation of liberation, although, of course, the Christian gospel, once its implications became clear, made slavery impossible. Peter's task is to help them live out their faith right now in this uncomfortable and brutal situation of slavery. How do I follow Jesus right now in this? And in that situation, Peter is counseling these slaves to be subject to their masters with all respect. Now, that might not be the best translation because the word there is fear. And whenever Peter talks about fear, as he often does in his book, it's never about fear towards people, but fear towards God. What he has just counseled everyone to do, to fear God. So he seems to be saying this, Your subjection to your master, it's not out of terror of your master and whatever beatings he might give you. It's about having your eyes fixed on God as a worshiper of God. Not just to the good and gentle masters, and there were some that did not take full advantage of all their rights, but even to the brutal, the unjust, and the cruel, of which there were many. And you might often find it as a slave being beaten unjustly. Beaten literally means to be struck with the fist. And you can imagine it would often happen that a Christian slave would come to the worship service or to the prayer meeting with a black eye or broken ribs, having endured some brutal beating by their master. And your ambition, at least in that situation, what you can control is this, Peter says, You might be beaten, but at least make sure you're being beaten unjustly. Make sure your beatings are not deserved. May your beatings at least be because your master is evil, not you. So these Christians 
slaves are in a situation where they are suffering injustice. That is the painful and brutal thing. But somehow, even in that, there is this dignity that Peter starts to uncover. First of all, slaves are worthy of honor. Honor everyone, Peter tells Christians. Not just the emperor, everyone. That includes slaves. Slaves are worthy of honor because they are men and women and children created in the image of God. And they are part of the brotherhood which you are called to love. They might have a low status in society. They might have zero value in the eyes of the world, but that's not how things work in the church of God. There is no slave or free in the family of God. And these slaves are free people in Christ. Somehow, in their slavery in this world, they are called to recognize the reality that I am a free man or woman in Jesus. And whatever people are telling me about my value and my status, it's not true. I'm free in Christ. And then these slaves are actually capable of receiving injustice. The philosopher Aristotle said, it's impossible to be unjust to a slave. You can't be unjust to a slave because he has no rights. He's just a tool. She's just a tool. You can't be unjust to them. But here Peter speaks about the possibility of slaves being treated unjustly. They deserve justice under God, and he is going to avenge those who treat them badly. And then, of course, it's interesting that these slaves are addressed directly. There are many uh, codes of behavior written in the pagan world that spoke about how slaves should behave, but they were never written to slaves. They were always written to the master. But here, when this letter was read, Peter is addressing the slaves in the congregation. They are moral agents. They have choices to make, and there is a word of God addressed to slaves. And so, even in all this, in all this submission and suffering and passive enduring, there is this dignity that even slaves have in the kingdom of God. In 1947, Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard University on Negro spirituals. He was an African-American theologian, and he addressed the question of these songs, these hymns that Negro slaves would sing in the 19th century. And the objection was this. All this Christianity was was bad for the slaves because it taught them just to suffer, to endure, and it kind of legitimated this whole institution of slavery. They should have been urged to rise up and rebel and end this institution. And he wrote this about their spirituals. He said, this sung faith served to deepen their capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. These songs of the Canaan, that the promised land that God was calling to them, gave them the hope to endure this brutal and dehumanizing environment. And they made a, a hopeless and worthless life, Thurman writes, the life of chattel poverty. They made this life, incredibly, a life worth living. And deep within them, even in their slavery, even in their grinding misery, they discovered 
God. And they discovered the far-flung purposes of God. And to know him was to live a life worthy of the loftiest meaning of life. Even in grinding slavery, God can be present and give hope to endure. And this endurance, which must have required incredible strength of character, was only possible because these slaves were being mindful of God. Notice that phrase of Peter, being mindful of God, having their eyes on God. It meant that their misery, their suffering, was not the greatest reality. It was not the only thing of which they were aware. There was something greater and beyond the life of slavery, the glory of God to which they were called. And in enduring beatings and suffering and the humiliation of slavery, somehow in that, they're doing something that is a gracious thing in the eyes of God, that is earning God's respect and honor and admiration, as it were, and eventually God's reward. So even a slave in the Roman Empire could find true purpose and dignity in Christ. That's the third paradox. There's this Christ, you can discover Christ in suffering. Because the life of slavery, the life of a slave, in fact, is sort of a paradigm for all Christians. Because Jesus himself took on the form of a slave, according to Philippians. The Lord of all, the one who sits at the right hand of God and beholds the unveiled glory of his Father, came to this earth and lived like a slave. And in the end, Jesus submitted himself totally to injustice and false accusations and beating and the death of a slave on the cross. And Peter says, look guys, this is our model. This is the example which we are all called to follow. And that word example is actually a very intriguing one in the original Greek because it literally means a writing copy. And Greek children, when they were learning how to write, they were given a papyrus or a tablet or whatever, a wax tablet, and on it was already written the tracings of the letter, and their job was to copy the letters out over the original copy. I don't know if any of you remember doing that in school with cursive writing, carefully with your shaky hands, tracing out the perfect copy again and again until you got it perfect. This is what Peter says Jesus is to us. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the full alphabet of God's will. And our calling is to carefully, with shaking hands at first, and then with more and more skill and confidence, to trace out the story of Jesus in our own lives. He's not just an example. He is the example, the model to which God is conforming us. And then we're called, to change the metaphor, to follow in Jesus' steps, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the very path that he trod. And of course, the footsteps of Jesus lead where? They lead to the suffering of the cross. And isn't it ironic that here is Peter, and you remember as we went through the gospel of Mark, Peter is the one who objects most stridently to the idea that Jesus is going to suffer and die. And the other 11 are quiet and modest, and Peter steps forward and 
dares to contradict Jesus to his face. No way are you going to the cross. And now, transformed by the Holy Spirit, Peter becomes the apostle that most emphasizes the suffering of Jesus as a model for ourselves. We're all called to follow the way of Jesus to the cross. And then Peter begins to allude to Isaiah chapter 53, that famous passage of the suffering servant. And verse after verse is a quotation or an allusion to this famous passage. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where that passage is quoted or expounded directly. He speaks of Jesus being silent when he's abused and insulted and reviled. Jesus is like a lamb going to the slaughter. He does not open his mouth. He clamps his lips shut and simply receives all these evil things that people are saying over him. And the reason Jesus was able to do that is because he was entrusting himself. He was handing himself over completely to the God who judges judges justly. There is going to be justice one day. The story is going to wrap up properly, and only God can bring that about. So here is Jesus as the model, the example, the writing copy. And we are invited in our own lives. We are called and summoned to make our own suffering and our own unjust suffering in this world a participation in Jesus' own story, a performance, a reenactment of the way of the cross in our own lives. What would Jesus do is a legitimate question. It is a question we must ask ourselves daily. How can I be like Jesus in facing suffering and injustice in my life? So we find Christ in suffering. As we become more and more like him ourselves, we experience his presence and his nearness in this path to the cross. But there is a point where Jesus, as example, stops because we can only follow him so far. And that division happens in our chapter between verses 23 and 24. There are some ways, many ways, in which our own lives are to be like Jesus, but there's a point in which Jesus' death on the cross is unrepeatable because Jesus died on the cross not just enduring unjust suffering imposed by human beings. He died to save the sheep for whom he was sent. He died on the cross. He bore our sins on that cursed tree in our place as a sacrifice sent by God. And on his back, he bore the wounds, the whipping that would bring us healing. So here we find ourselves following in the steps of Jesus, following not this brutal, harsh, and unjust master, not even a good and gentle master, but a master who actually loves people enough to bring about the greatest paradox of all that sinners and rebels become the beloved sons and daughters of God. And when we follow in Jesus' footsteps, we discover that he is the shepherd and overseer. He's the guardian of our souls. And all those things that war within us from within and from without cannot truly threaten us because we belong to Jesus. And in Jesus, one day, all these strange paradoxes of the Christian life 
which are so awkward and difficult to endure, are one day going to be resolved and find their conclusion in the kingdom of God. So let's bow our heads and pray that that day would come quickly. Father, we thank you for sending your son as a sacrifice for sinners. Thank you that he willingly endured the shame of the cross. He bent his back to the suffering. Lord, we are so impatient under suffering, and we get so angry and frustrated. And we thank you that Jesus was not angry or frustrated, that he said, Lord, may your will be done, not my own. Lord, by your spirit, the life of Jesus lives within us. And we pray that you would give us grace to have lives that are molded after his. Shape us to become more and more like Jesus. And when we experience suffering and injustice in this life, as we surely will, God, may the goodness and beauty that can only come from your spirit shine from our lives. And may those around us, even if they speak evil of us, may they see the reality of the hope that lives in us. Lord, we need grace because we quickly confess that we cannot live this life on our own. It's not within us to endure suffering in this way. So give grace, give your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf.org. Thanks for listening.